Do you ever feel like you're always on? What do you do when you need a moment to chill? How do you like to hit the reset button to get ready for what's next? These days, everything is go, go, go. It's nothing but nonstop hustle all the time. With working from home and trying to stay in touch with friends and family, a million pressing social issues, and an expectation to always be on 24-7. Sometimes you just need a moment to turn off and hit reset. That's when you reach for Coors Light. It's made to chill. My moment to chill is watching baseball, especially when the White Sox are on. I like to have a Coors Light beside me. It's a great beer to have watching the games as it's cool and refreshing as the Colorado Rockies. And even the mountains on my cans turn blue telling me that it's time to hit reset. Sit back, relax, and hunker down for an evening of White Sox baseball. So when it's time for you to unwind, reach for the beer that's made to chill. Get Coors Light and the new look delivered straight to your door with Drizzly or Instacart. Must be 21 years or older to enjoy. Coors Brewing Company, Golden, Colorado. And as always, celebrate responsibly. Introducing Guinness Nitro Cold Brew Coffee Beer. Blending the smooth, creamy nitro taste of Guinness with hints of coffee, chocolate, and caramel. Guinness Nitro Cold Brew Coffee Beer, your new favorite part of the day. Look for it where Guinness is sold. Must be 21 and over to purchase. Please enjoy responsibly. Diageo Beer Company, New York, New York. From your favorite source for Chicago White Sox talk, delivering news, interviews, analysis, and more. This is the Sox Machine Podcast with your hosts, Jim Margulis and Josh Nelson. Thanks, Rob, and welcome to the Sox Machine Podcast. I'm your host, Josh Nelson, and it's the week of August 3rd, 2020. The Chicago White Sox had a great weekend as they swept the Kansas City Royals on the road, a terrible place typically for the White Sox, but it was happy times in KC this past weekend, and the White Sox are now 5-4. and four. And as the Twins won three out of four against Cleveland this weekend, the White Sox will start this week alone in second place in the American League Central. Just a week ago, they were in last place. Now they're in second place. 2020's looking up. There's a lot to recap from Kansas City. Big offensive games. Yasmani Grandel is heating up. Nick Magical had an up and down start to his career. And Dylan Cease bounces back. We'll touch on all of that but also review the impact of Tim Anderson's injury that will sideline him for the next eight games. Half of those games this week is against the Milwaukee Brewers, who had a terrible weekend, and they didn't play any games. Brad Ford of Brew Crew Ball will join the show later to tell us what the heck is going on in the Cream City. After that, we'll answer your questions in P.O. Sox. But first, as we all should do routinely in 2020... It's time to take our temperature, where we sit with this White Sox squad. Joining me is the co-host of the podcast and managing editor of SoxMachine.com. It's Jim Margulis. And hello, Jim. Fun weekend in Kansas City. I once asked, I once again asked fans how they are feeling about this squad like we did last week. And shockingly, Jim, the results have dramatically changed. So let me ask you, how do you feel about this White Sox team after the Kansas City series? Great Okay, not worried, a little worried, 
or hitting the panic button still? I would say, okay, not worried in terms of talent. Uh, as long as you say it's okay that they're worse than the Twins and Indians, but better than everybody else. I think this series showed that they're not a bad team. You know, they're maybe not a good team, a, a postseason team. Yeah, if you count a good team as a postseason team in a traditional 162-game season, I could see them being a little bit out, but they're not bad, and I think that's something. And I'm with you as well. I'm also improved. We were both last week a little worried because the White Sox were clear a clear step behind the Minnesota Twins. And that situation did not change at all during the Cleveland series. Um, but with Kansas City, we, we talked about this was a series that the White Sox had to win if they were if they wanted to be serious about making the postseason in 2020. And not only did they win this series, they swept the Royals. So they put themselves back above 500 in August in what seems like forever since the last time they've done that. I didn't even bother looking it up. I didn't want to depress myself. But the part that I am... I'm with you that I'm okay. I'm not worried, but there is a concern. And my concern, Jim, is these next eight games without Tim Anderson as he has suffered a strained groin and he's been placed on the 10-day injured list. And again, I'm curious to see how the White Sox hold up because Anderson was on fire, Jim, at the plate before getting hurt. He was 8-for-16 in his last four games with four runs scored, four doubles, and a home run. So they're now going to have to try to make up for his bat, and then also have to lean on Lurie Garcia and Danny Mendick to be able to hold down the position defensively. Yeah, I, I can see that. The thing about Anderson, uh, thinking about his absence, is when you look at the lineup and you look at the depth and, and just where the White Sox score runs and how they score runs, Anderson, to me, even though he won the batting title last year, it seems like he looks bad or at least like he can be neutralized in enough games to where I don't really fret about a short-term absence. If he misses a game, if he misses a week, it seems like, well, maybe that's just a bad week from Anderson they'll be missing, you know, where he uh, you know, swings it, uh, or he sees like five pitches over four at-bats, grounds out three times, uh, you know, once into a double play, makes an error. He's just a flawed enough player, at least one with, a, you know, I guess, visible enough flaws to where you can just kind of picture, okay, maybe, uh, you know, they're missing him, but maybe they're missing the games that... Uh, Nobody likes seeing, and maybe when he'll come back, he'll provide the, uh, you know, he'll pro- provide the, uh, yeah, a higher percentage of the better games with a lesser sample. That's just kind of how I see it right now. But also, I think when you when you face uh, Royals pitching, it can make uh, the replacements look a little bit better than they are. So maybe that's a something that's clouding my thinking as well. Yeah, for the White Sox in the two games so far without Anderson, Lurie Garcia on Saturday reached on base. Six times. He was four for five with a walk, and the one time that he did not rack up a hit or a walk, he reached on an error. He did not play on Sunday. He he had a death in the family, so Danny Mendick got the start on Sunday, and he wasn't challenged, so thumbs up. Uh, And with Garcia and Mendick handling the position defensively at shortstop, replacing Anderson in the lineup batting leadoff is Luis Robert. And Robert, in his first two games at leadoff, is 5 for 10. His first game at leadoff, he was a triple shy of the cycle on Saturday. And Jim, I think Robert, long term, we're talking the next four to five seasons, 
is going to be the leadoff hitter for the Chicago White Sox. If he keeps hitting at the pace that he's at, which currently he's at hitting 351 with a 385 on base percentage and slugging 595, I know, small sample size, nine games, but that's still awesome to see out of Luis Robert. When Anderson comes back, if, again, if Robert continues the pace that he's at, do you see Robert staying at leadoff despite Anderson being healthy again? And then Anderson's the one that drops down the order, batting sixth or seventh. I kind of like him in the leadoff spot just because I, I would say in this kind of batting order where the White Sox are deeper and can score runs from more parts of the order. Uh, maybe like a couple of years ago when the White Sox had four, five good hitters and then like a steep drop off. I think that leadoff spot might have been a little bit too, uh, you know, I guess, important to play with with somebody who can look. Uh, as overmatched as Robert does, like you know, when he had the three pitch strikeout, you know, he got bullied inside slider away, and he was pretty easy to put away. And some at bats, he just gives away with an experience like that. But uh, when the lineup can score in more places, like you know, five through seven this year, where they couldn't score from that area before, and even Madrigal, when he goes, you know, with four hits from the nine spot, that's a kind of ninth hitter that they haven't had. Usually, the ninth hitter has been Adam Engel, who strikes out a lot or hits. Uh, you know, just kind of tops the ball or pops it up. You know, he's not really somebody who hits for a high average the way Magical can. Um, I, I think that makes Robert a bit more compelling in the first spot, just because if he does strike out more often than usual or have those at bats where he just rolls over the first pitch slider because he hasn't had the discipline yet to lay off it, it doesn't really matter because nobody's really going to be on base. Uh, I think I'd rather have him in the first spot than, like, say, the sixth spot where he's trying to keep a rally going or he's got guys on base with two outs. And, uh, you know, it's really important what he does with that particular bat and, you know, maybe just doesn't come through uh, because because he can swing out of his shoes a little bit or chase pitches away. So, uh, you know, based on that kind of balance where I'm striking, where I think, like, you know, I don't count on him giving a good at bat uh, most of the time, but I'm, I, I like seeing him up there and I think he has the talent to surprise me an awful lot. I think it's actually a pretty good spot for a leadoff man, even if his swing profile and his contact profile and, uh, unwillingness to, you know, work deep, deep counts normally makes him a bad right. one. But we have seen in this, some situations that if a pitcher gets through the lineup and then has to face Robert again, if they just want to get a quick start, he is so aggressive, Jim, that pitchers, I think, are learning very quickly. You just can't throw a fastball for strike one of the zone anywhere in the middle of the plate because mm-hmm. he's going to swing. And if he makes contact, he's making loud contact and he's doing damage early in 2020. I do see that teams are starting to learn, even from Luis Robert. It's just not the sliders away, which Robert is you know, doing a good job learning those pitches. He's still whiffing a lot, but we do see him laying off those pitches. But we are now seeing fastballs that are busting him inside up in the zone. And I'm curious to see if we're going to see more of that this upcoming week as the Cleveland Indians get another chance to face Luis Robert this upcoming weekend and a Milwaukee Brewers team over the next four games uh, that has they don't have anyone that really impresses you as far as pitching wise. Nobody that you would consider to be a Cy Young candidate, uh, maybe with the exception of Josh Hader coming out of the bullpen, but they are still in a very effective pitching rotation. I'm wondering on how they will attack Luis Robert. And uh, I'm, I'm again, I'm curious to see if Robert can still hold his ground, Jim, as the leadoff hitter. 
And if he'll force the issue, force Rick Renteria's hand when Anderson does come back in eight games, uh, whether or not if Robert stays as the leadoff or if he drops down late in the lineup and then Anderson gets his leadoff spot back. So that's one of the storylines that I'm following over the next eight games. But I am more concerned as far as in the defense, and I will have my fingers crossed, Jim, with every ground ball that's hit to the shortstop area that Garcia and Mendick can make the plays. I'm assuming, though, Garcia is going to get every start if he's physically ready, right? Uh, I guess it depends on what's happening in right field, although Adam Engel looking pretty good early on. I think that uh, had, uh, I think that maybe he can take care of the starts that, uh, whether it's Nomar Mazzaro, uh, if he comes back, I assume he'll be getting the starts. I, I think that corner is more or less set. So, yeah, I'm guessing he'll get the starts at short, assuming he's back and his his mind is uh, clear. But it's it makes sense, I think, especially, you know, say if it's an underwhelming pitcher or at least uh, somebody that doesn't really have a power profile to let Mendick have a start. He's not doing any harm, I don't think. No, I don't think he's doing any harm. I just like Lurie Garcia's offensive profile better. I mean, after opening day, which was a bad game for Garcia, I think Jim Garcia has played well. Yeah, pretty much. I, I just, uh, you know, watching him, especially with his left-handed swing, think sometimes he can just get in the habit of beating balls in the ground and just having ineffective at bats. And I think when you have Madrigal, who's still there, pounding balls in the ground, I think it's just uh, those two guys in a row. Uh, you know, it's not the most enjoyable form, although Madrigal came back in a big way. Uh, but yeah, I, I just I just think there isn't a huge drop off between the two, Garcia and Mendick. If you want to keep Mendick uh, active and involved in the proceedings, it doesn't hurt to give him a start because I don't see the drop off being that big, especially when Garcia is swinging the bat from the left side. Speaking as far as waking up a little bit offensively, Yasmani Grandal on Friday night had another offer. And looking at a stat cast data, if you just look at the graphics on his stat cast page at Baseball Savant, it does a terrific job of illustrating the struggles that Yasmani Grandal is going through to start the 2020 season. Well, Saturday and Sunday combined, he was five for nine with five RBIs and two walks. And it sounds like that he's starting to get into a groove a little bit here, Jim. And as the White Sox cleanup hitter, it just seems like the offense is not firing in all cylinders. Like the White Sox get a little bit of offense going with Anderson and Mikata or Robert and Mikata and then whatever Abreu can do. And, you know, Abreu is not exactly lighting the world on fire uh, to start the season. But Grandal and Carnacion both starting cold kind of gives you this gap in the lineup where you don't want to see a gap in the middle of the order. Mm -hmm. And then the offense begins to pick up again with Jimenez and Robert uh, in the lower half of the lineup, start generating a second wave of offense. How critical is it for Grandal to start picking up his game offensively for the White Sox? Well, not as critical as in past years, just because there are guys behind him that can hit. And that's kind of fun. Um, it strikes me that you know, watching Grandal is part of it's just a slow start, uh, just not great contact and, and not really stinging the ball early, although he did pick it up late. But uh, also it seems like he's been, I guess, on both sides, uh, both receiving and um, you know at the plate. It's not a great time, I think, to uh, be a master of the edges of the zone, whether it's receiving or whether it's uh, at the plate, because I think the... Strike zones have been really erratic this year, um, you know, and, and, and seeing comments across even games that the White Sox aren't playing and watching the, the strike zone maps. 
It wouldn't surprise me if umpires are rusty or, you know, if they're wearing masks, if that somehow affects perceptions of parts of the zone or just something that's uh, not they're they're not quite used to and so they're not the finely tuned machines that they normally are when it comes to discerning balls versus strikes but I think he's gotten the bat some bad counts too or some uh some battles that should have been shaping in his favor took a wrong turn and then uh you know just whatever reason whatever whatever he was setting up he could not uh come back from or at least could not change course during the at bat so early on it seems like uh you know it's been partially you know, just uh, not great swings or, um, you know, not barreling it up. But also I think uh, he's gotten a little bit of bad luck when it comes to just uh, uh, not being rewarded for his eye. So uh, I'm encouraged to see him have a nice series against the Royals just because the bats didn't seem as bad uh, when it came to just uh, discipline as the StatCast numbers would have you uh, would have you believe. So I'm I'm ultimately bullish on him rounding into form, but I would like to see, you know, Eloy Jimenez coming up behind him and, and making that a really more imposing three, four, five. Yeah. Eloy, he cannot be batting six anymore. I'm sorry. I don't want to nitpick Rick Renteria's lineup because the White Sox, again, we still haven't seen them fully healthy and fully in force of what the original design was to be for this White Sox lineup before the 2020 season started. We are thinking Norm Mazar will be joining the White Sox most likely today on Monday, August 3rd, ready to go for the Milwaukee Brewers series and making his debut in 2020. But again, Anderson's on the injured list. So until Anderson comes back, then we'll finally get an opportunity to see this White Sox lineup on how it was originally designed by both Rick Hahn and Rick Renteria uh, after this offseason, knock on wood. Nobody else gets hurt, and we could finally see that plan come into place, Jim. Mm -hmm. um, but I, I think um, we'll have the conversation about Edwin Encarnacion for a future episode if he does not pick it up. But at this moment, I, I'm with you. If Grandal could start hitting at the four spot, I would I would swap Edwin and Aloy and have Aloy bat fifth. I just think he's more of an impact bat at this moment than Edwin, uh, who who's struggling right now as far as to find a group. But again, Edwin did have two singles. On Sunday, so hopefully that gets him going. But it was nice to see Yasmani Grandel come up with some big hits for the White Sox over this weekend and uh, driving in runs because he's been getting plenty of opportunities thanks to the great starts from Anderson, Robert, and Mikata, especially getting on base. Now on the pitching side, Dallas Keuchel was Keuchel on Friday night. Uh, Gio Gonzalez did the best that I thought he could as far as holding up physically. But in order for the White Sox, you know, really to get themselves in this, in the, into this position above 500 and currently second place in the American League Central, they need Dylan Cease to bounce back and start progressing and be a little bit more reliable than what they saw in his last outing in Cleveland. And it's hard to believe by looking at the final score, but Sunday's game was tight for six innings. If you didn't get a chance to watch, at one point it was tied 2-2 two to two before the White Sox exploded for seven runs in the seventh inning. And Jim, Dylan Cease, he made a mistake to Alex Gordon with a high changeup that was resulted in a home run. And uh, Aloy's lack of range may have costed Cease another run uh, on a fly ball that should have been caught in left field. But, you know, again, Aloy's got limited range. Outside of that, Cease did bounce back, in my opinion. He threw six innings. He only allowed the two runs on five hits, one walk. One walk, that's good to see. And he struck out four. How do you feel about Cease's start on Sunday? 
I think it was more along the lines of what he was expecting. Uh, I, I think after the game, he criticized himself, or at least he said that his curveball command wasn't that great, or he wasn't getting the swings and misses on the breaking stuff. But the fastball command allowed him to be competitive pretty much every at bat. You know that he didn't give really any away. Um, the changeup is one pitch I don't really like from him right now, especially from threatening left-handed bats. The the, the Indians got him for it. Uh, during that series, then Gordon stung a high changeup. I think, uh, you know, there are a lot of comparisons between Cease and Giolito in terms of making the jump. But, you know, I think uh, the changeup is one where that's not really Cease's pitch. It's more of a, a clear third pitch and certainly can't get away with the floaters the way that uh, uh, Giolito can. I think just something in his delivery makes it kind of a mystifying pitch, almost like a knuckleball to where, uh, you know, even if it's high and floating, it's not necessarily one that hitters can square up. Uh, but yeah, the the command of the the strike zone and the uh, just the pace and efficiency with which he was pitching was more along the lines of what we thought. I think eighty three pitches over six innings, which is great. You know, that's uh, that's an easy seven. That's I think what the White Sox need to see, especially with Gonzalez and uh, in front of him and Rodon behind him. And we got a question from Andrew uh, in, in the PO Sox line, but it was he's talking about Gonzalez and you know, whether we think he is going on an audition um, format you know, with his starts and more a week-to-week guy or if Dane Dunning is going to challenge him. And I think right now with the way the pitching depth is and with the way pitchers have been getting hurt, I think Gonzalez just has to try to be that four to five inning guy every time out uh, because he's a veteran. He's used to it. He's used to, um, you know, that's just his brand of pitching right now is a very inefficient brand, but ultimately effective. And then, uh, you know, seeing Jimmy Lambert get hurt, I think, is somewhat of the cautionary tale for trying to bring a guy back from injury too soon, or at least a guy who hasn't really had a regular five-game schedule in a while, uh, you know, trying to put him into, you know, competitive major league situations. Uh, maybe you don't want that. I think Shoei Atani right now is struggling with that too. Um, you know, another case of a guy going down with arm injury after not having a whole lot of recent pitching experience. I think Dunning is probably better off than Schaum- Schaumburg trying to pitch on a sp- you know, real spring training-like environment to ramp up to where eventually he can maybe challenge him. But with pitchers probably being needed at some point, extra pitchers I'm talking about being needed probably some point uh, in the next few weeks because of the way pitchers are going down. I think right now you ride with Gonzalez the with the brand of baseball he provides and uh, a firm idea of what you plan to do for the middle innings behind him, like 5th, 6th, 7th. Uh, then you hope that Cease can be that six-inning guy. Um, and then with Rodon, you get what you get. But yeah, it is really important that Cease commands the strike zone like this. So even if he does get whomped on early, like we saw with Giolito before, they can at least come back and, and throw five to six innings and not really have the inefficiency problems on top of the, the occasional inning that gets away from him. And then finally, the big Sunday performance for the White Sox after... Not so great Friday and Saturday. Nick Madrigal, his up and down weekend. So Friday, he makes his major league debut, goes over three. Saturday, goes over five with a strikeout and two double plays. And after the game on Sunday, he told the media he didn't get much sleep uh, after Saturday's game due to his poor performance. So on Sunday, Magical look like Matt, the Nick Magical we've seen since he's joined the White Sox farm system, going four for five with four singles and an RBI. And uh, Jim, I'm, I'm I'm happy for Nick Magical uh, to have that kind of performance. Uh, you know, not only just to get your first major league hit, but then it becomes your first multi-hit game, your first three-hit game, and then your first four-hit game. 
Uh, and it's just the, the first weekend of his major league career. Uh, but on Sunday, I felt like that will be something we may see frequently from Nick Magical as far as the kind of hits that he was generating for the White Sox batting ninth. Yeah, those uh, singles to right field are pretty much his brand. And I think the Royals did him a favor a little bit with just the way they attacked him and, and giving him those outer half pitches to barrel up. And even the, uh, the the single that started the rally in the seventh inning where threw a slider uh, down off the plate and he just reached, uh, poked the bat out there and, and, and poked a flare into right field that started the whole mess for the Royals. And it, it reminds me a little bit of uh, the discussion about Robert. You know, obviously the... The swing and miss disparity between the two is is rather large. You know, Magical putting the bat in everything and Robert missing a lot. But when it comes to the way they're attacking, I think, you know, if Robert can be in a position where he gets the arms extended, he can deal with the sliders uh, down and away because occasionally they'll be left up. And I think it's kind of the same thing with Magical where, you know, he's comfortable going to right field. That's where he lifts the ball. That's where a lot of his you know best line drive contact goes. And I'm curious along the same lines, you know, with Robert, where, you know, fastballs inside, fastballs up are going to be the next step. And I'm curious whether the uh, opponents will try to say like, okay, he's now barreling it up on the outside. He's not getting overmatched by everything. He's not in between. So now we'll take the next step and also throw fastballs inside and uh, fastballs up and try to challenge him to pull the ball in the air to left and try to hit him, you know, get him to hit the ball too high to where it's, you know, uh, because batting average is lower on you know, fly balls and pop-ups to try to get him to do that. And that's kind of where I'm looking at, you know, watching the way he was hitting the ball and, and how he's hitting the ball the hardest. It's all up the middle and to the right side. And so that seems to say, okay, let's go inside, see if you have an inside-out swing, and that's not really as much of Madrigal's game. And uh, so I'm, I don't think he's out of the woods just yet, but I think it was huge for him to have a game like that because, yeah, many more games of the, you know, hitting the balls to shortstop, hitting the balls to second base, uh, easy double plays, um, and, and, and being in a situation where when he has runners in first and second, you wish he would bunt, which is never great. Um, the, uh, it, was, it was huge to have a game like that, especially since, you know, with the way pitching staffs are losing guys and with illnesses and everything like that, you're not, not always going to see the team's, other team's best pitcher. So it will pay to beat up on bad pitching this year, and I think that's what Magical did on, uh, on Sunday. During the game on Sunday, uh, especially on Twitter, you had a variety of people chiming in, some people that were really happy, especially on the prospect side, to see Nick Magical having this type of performance. But even though when he was racking up the singles, you, you do have the skeptics providing the criticism, questioning Magical staying power in the major leagues if he's not going to be able to produce extra base hits and with the lack of hard hits from his offensive profile. Are you worried, Jim, about his long-term future as the player that he currently is? Uh, slightly, um, just because it is a hard way to make a living, but some guys can make a living like that. Like I'm thinking like David Fletcher on the, on the Angels, fine player, you know, all around the infield, kind of a similar profile, small guy, can't really, I mean, he, he, he's good for a handful of homers a year and Magical might even get that much. So I think there is a strength disparity there that, uh, that, that shrinks Magical's margin for error. But when you have a hit tool, especially in an era where strikeouts are rising, 
I don't think that can be completely discounted when you pair it with good defense at an up the middle position. Um, you know, maybe infield defense won't be as important for some teams based on how they shift and such, but there is a profile where Magical can have a very unique uh, brand of success, especially if he's not uh, expected to hit for power, if they don't need him to be an impact player. I think if he's in an offense where he's batting eighth or ninth, or, you know, should he be a reliable 300 hitter, you know, batting in the leadoff spot and being like a table setter type, that's a pretty good lineup. Like if you don't feel pressured to bat magical higher than eighth, or or if he, his on-base percentage is like 350 and he can get on base and run and do everything like that and be on base for those uh, sluggers, that's pretty good. So I, I th- you know, I think his future becomes tougher or more pressure is put on him if it's like a lineup like 2018 White Sox where okay, we need you to be one of the four or five best or at least most impactful hitters on the team. I don't think he's a great bet for that. I think, you know, maybe if the if the hit tool really does show up the way people think it can, if he's like a 330 hitter, then maybe he is one of those best four or five hitters with his very weird profile. But just thinking traditionally, if, you know, even if he's a 300 hitter, might not be the best, you know, uh, four or five OPSs on the team. And as long as they're not relying on that, then he can fit in the lineup and he can do enough things well to where he can be an asset to a team. Just there's a there's a drop off or there's a worry that if you try to expect too much from him, you can get in trouble. And so I think that's really what fans, uh, when discussing him, might be guarding themselves against. Like, is he going to be that uh, like a Yohan Mankata type, um, you know, an Andrew Vaughn type? No. But uh, is he going to be like a very is he going to be a player that teams don't like facing? Because, you know, watching the White Sox play the Angels, I don't like when David Fletcher is at the plate. Uh, that's that's tough. That's not an easy out. You feel like he can, especially like with a runner on on second. Ichiro is the same way. We're just like, I never liked uh, seeing him come up when uh, contact could do damage. <laughs> I think uh, as long as the White Sox don't have the... Uh, heavy strikeout, few walk offense to where, um, you know, every base runner is precious and, and, and you need instant offense from as many spots because they, they can't be counted upon sustain innings. Then yeah, the magical becomes more of a problem, but you know, with this longer offense and feeling like the offense can provide runs from different spots of the order and with different guys starting an inning, I think magical can fit in just fine. Other notes of good performances this weekend. Congrats to Matt Foster making his first major league appearance and also getting his first strikeout. Same with Yerman Mercedes, who had a plate appearance on Sunday, pinch hitting for Edwin Encarnacion. He grounded out. Cody Hoyer picked up his first save, Jim. Looked a little rocky in the ninth inning, but good thing the White Sox had a big lead. But uh, he did look good striking out Jorge Soler. Oh, and Foster picked up his first win as well. Foster got the win in that? Yeah, he pitched the fifth inning. Oh, that's right. (laughs) Well, congrats, Matt Foster, making your first major league appearance and getting your first major league win. How about that? I didn't even catch that. Oh, I'm not really paying attention, folks, to wins and losses by pitchers in this 2020 season uh, with so very few of them going five innings these days. Uh, Back on offense, Yuan Mercado was three for 11. He had three walks. Jose Bray was four for 14 in the series. Aloy Jimenez was four for six on Saturday with a home run and four RBIs, including that wacky home run that was pretty much thrown into the stands by the center fielder in accident. And like I said, as far as the pitching side, Dallas Keuchel was Keuchel on Friday night. Uh, Gonzalez held up. And uh, the big news, Ross Detweiler finally allowed a base runner, but not a run yet. 
<laughs> Old Hostetweiler. He's looking good. He is looking good to start the season. The entire bullpen is looking really good. Aaron Bummer is back to back into his 2019 form after he kind of struggled against the Minnesota Twins in the opening weekend. Uh, really great stuff from the White Sox bullpen. I, I know that with the White Sox starters, there was a lot of angst against Don Cooper. Uh, and as far as his job getting the starters ready, uh, however, for as much grief you want to give him about the starting pitchers, we have to give him credit for and how the way uh, the White Sox bullpen has been performing, at least for the first nine games of the year. But speaking of Gio Gonzalez and Yasmani Grandal, they're going to get an opportunity to say hello to their old friend, the Milwaukee Brewers. And we're going to be learning more about the Milwaukee Brewers troubling weekend with our upcoming guest, Brad Ford, a Brew Crew Ball, next on the Sox Machine Podcast. At CVS Health Hub, you can see a provider, fill a prescription, and grab what you need all in one trip, even on evenings and weekends. That's healthier made easier. Visit a CVS Health Hub today. Services vary by location. See cvs.com slash health hub for details. When your entire life is online, you need more than just speed from your internet. Xfinity gives you reliable in-home Wi-Fi coverage, plus protection from Wi-Fi network threats. Go online, call 1-800-XFINITY, or visit a store today to learn more. Restrictions apply. Welcome back to the Sox Machine Podcast. While the Chicago White Sox had a good weekend in Kansas City, the Milwaukee Brewers did not. They were supposed to play the St. Louis Cardinals, but they didn't play any games this weekend due to multiple Cardinals players testing positive for coronavirus. Then the hits kept coming. Lorenzo Cain opted out of the 2020 season. Ryan Braun has been placed on the 10-day injured list. And their bench coach, Pat Murphy, suffered a heart attack on Saturday. On top of all this, Christian Yelich is not hitting to start the season. And now the Milwaukee Brewers are chasing the Chicago Cubs in the National League Central, who are off to a 7-2 start while the Brewers are currently at 500 at 3-3. Milwaukee is in need of some good news. Will they find some this week against the White Sox in these next four games? Well, helping us preview from Brew Crew Ball, an excellent resource for all things Milwaukee Brewers, it's Brad Ford. And hello, Brad. Thanks for coming on the show. Hi, Josh. My pleasure. Thanks for having me. How are Brewers fans processing all of this weekend's bad news? Because, again, it, it started with the Cardinals testing positive and the, and the postponement of Friday night's game, and then it just seemed like an avalanche of bad news came behind it. Well, the Cardinals one was definitely a hit because, of course, you're excited for home opener. How long have we waited now for baseball and for fans to really watch it happen in Miller Park, you know, everyone's very excited for that to take place and finally watch it at the home stadium, even though no one's allowed to go in and watch. So I think that is what's most disheartening about the Cardinal situation. But I think there's also a lot of relief because initially it comes out, it's postponed for COVID reasons. You don't know who's at fault. You worry about the players who you've liked for how long. And then, of course, you never want to see anyone get it, but that it's not those guys who you have already put your heart and soul into. I know has lifted some stress off the Brewers fans backs. I mean, again, we don't want anyone to be sick. We feel bad for the Cardinals, too. But there's always that worry, then a little bit of relief when it's not your own. Um, but then uh, I've actually been kind of surprised about how the fans have reacted regarding Lorenzo Cain. Everyone's been very supportive. They know. He's a family man. They know that, you know, he is very thoughtful in his decisions. And that is something that 
a lot of fans were considerate about. Of course, you have fans who are a little less understanding of someone who's making a million dollars a year, well, millions of dollars a year, not playing. And I think that's understandable to an extent, right? When you try to, when you look at something from your own shoes, Mm -hmm. it's like, well, I have to work, but um, I don't think, I think that was a morale dinger, but I don't think it hurt people as much because the fourth outfielder, Ben Gamble is hitting incredibly well right now. And he's the obvious fill-in at the moment for Lorenzo Kane. However, Kane had a hit track record. It was a one-time MVP candidate, had gotten off to a, what looked like a resurgent season and an exceptionally small sample size. So of course it's a big blow to the line, but I think it's a little bit easier knowing that Ben Gamble is hot right now Um, from the left side of the plate, you know, versatile outfielder used to play for the Marlins and kind of an average guy, not a big power hitter, but made a big swing change in the off season. And that showed during summer camp. So I think that has fans a little relieved as well. Ryan Braun getting injured uh, is something we're just used to. <laughs> uh, the infected finger is a little weird, but I, I don't think Ryan Braun hitting the 10-day <laughs> IL is ever a surprise to any Brewers fan. Uh, the, you know, the fan base, much like I'm sure the community, baseball community in general, is fairly slit on him ever since the uh, PED suspensions. Uh, I think overall, Milwaukee... Largely adores him, but we understand that he is a fragile boy who uh, needs his time to get healthy. Uh, I think the biggest thing about it is he's talked openly about being day to day on whether he opts out. So I believe that fans are now more concerned that this is more of a cover up and have their conspiracy theory hats on than that this is actually a true injury and more of a way to get more out of Ryan Braun for longer while he determines what he needs to do. Obviously, that's pretty hard to get through because MLB does have some protocols to, in order to send IL to avoid the classic mystery injuries that teams have used to manipulate the roster in the past. Um, and then Pat Murphy, that's a big hit. Uh, we know that he's council's spiritual advisor. And it's just one thing where it's the humanity that really comes in and you realize these are humans playing and you just want them to get well, stay well. Sounds like he was able to get the appropriate treatment quickly and is hopefully doing very well and recovers from this. But also it's hard to imagine a guy who just had a heart attack coming back out into the dugout because that definitely seems like someone who is at a higher risk now that uh, that has occurred. And it seems like that spiritual advisor for Craig Council might not be available to him for the rest of the season. Yeah, again, it's just a great I – I don't think any team this – any weekend of this season has suffered as much bad news as the Brewers have. And you mentioned as far as Gamble replacing Lorenzo Cain and for the White Sox fans, it, there's a bit of a sigh of relief because Lorenzo Cain's been a pain in the ass to the White Sox uh, <laughs> over the years. Uh, as far as with Ryan Braun, I know he's been primary DH. Who's going to take those at bats instead of Ryan Braun in the lineup? You know, the Brewers really have a deep roster when it comes to positional availability, and they're built off of really uh, platoon splits and mixing things up. So it all depends on what day and who they're facing. So when they have Jed Jerko, they have Brock Holt, they have Logan Morrison, who are all really filling these utility type roles um, and are mixes of right and left-handed bats who will probably get a predominant amounts of those times. And then they'll also use them to get players an off day here or there. So I think that's really how we can expect to 
see that used. I think ideally the Brewers put Keston Hira, the second baseman there, because Keston Hira isn't the most sound defensive second baseman in the league. He's looked better this year than last year, but he is somewhat of a liability out there. But the ideal option to play at second base is Luis Urias, who is still recovering because he started the year on the COVID IL. So he's at Appleton, which is our little satellite site for our taxi squad, getting ready to get into games before he actually comes and takes over any playing time. Uh, So he was going to be the likely candidate to take over for Orlando Arcia, who's had a rough couple of years offensively. Um, So I think the ideal there would have been you're getting Arcia, who's actually started the season hot, in shortstop, Urias at second base, Kesson Hira at DH. But instead, in this White Sox series, you're going to see a lot of those role players like Brock Holt, like Logan Morrison in at that DH spot. I love watching Hira hit. I was I was skeptical of him while tracking as far as college players because he was also not playing much defense in college. And then when he got drafted before the White Sox could make their selection, I was uh, I was interested to see how Milwaukee was going to to use Hira. And ever since he's been in Milwaukee, the, the dude just hits. He's such a phenomenal hitter. And, you know, paired up with Christian Yelich, I was thinking, wow, that's a great one-two in the lineup. But what in the world is wrong with Christian Yelich? His OPS plus is negative 40, Brad. I've never seen it that low. <laughs> yeah, it's been a rough one to watch. You know, you're looking at one of the best players in baseball from 2018 and 2019 really just get off to the slog. And he's talked about it. He's admitted that his timing is off. His front step is off and mechanics just are kind of throwing him out of whack. And that's the issue. I think us as Brewers fan have seen how much he's loved Miller Park since coming over from the Marlins. And the hope was that this weekend series was going to actually be his coming out party where he was able to take advantage of a park that's very, very friendly to left handed hitters and get that bat finally heated up. But those those timing issues and now a long delay. I mean, they were off Thursday and then you had the Friday, Saturday, Sunday cancellations. That isn't always good for a baseball player. We've seen how that can impact hot teams in the playoffs when they end up sweeping a series and then having to wait a long time and go into the next series really cold. We've seen that that's been a bad look for a bad experience for them and their performance. So that I think is concerning in terms of expectations, but guy is one of the best hitters in baseball and has proven that repeatedly, even when he wasn't MVP Christian Yelich, he was, you know, you could count on him for 280, 20 home runs. So, you know, this is a guy who's going to get out of his funk and at least he knows what the issue is. I think the issue with knowing what the issue is, is then you over analyze it, right? You kind of really just get that down. Hopefully this four day layover has given him some time to work on it and make it muscle memory versus a constant thought. But, uh, you know, after you come up off the couch, two weeks of hitting is not what players are used to get ready. And I, I think that ended up being more of a challenge in terms of readiness for Yelich than he'd like to admit, especially when his mechanics aren't where they want him to be. But this is definitely the worst stretch in that we've seen from him. The nice thing is there does seem to be some BABIP issues in play. He's dung a couple of balls pretty hard. So hopefully not only is it just a small mechanical tweak that he needs to make, but it's also a little bad luck playing into that. 
And then still sticking with the offense, two players in particular. One, is it illegal to strike out Eric Sogard? I mean, he's got one of the oddest <laughs> slash lines. He's hitting 188 and he's slugging 250, which you look at those two numbers and think, well, Josh, why are we talking about this guy? His on-base percentage is 435. He has walked seven times to only one strikeout. And the White Sox starting pitchers have not had the best control to start the season. And I'm a bit afraid here that Eric Sogard, while he may not rack up hits, he's going to get on base multiple times against White Sox pitching. Uh, Is he the guy that's leading off for the Milwaukee Brewers right now? With Kane out and his walk potential, I absolutely think he's the leadoff hitter. Uh, You know, he started off that first series against the club Cubs kind of slow comes in and pinch his pinch hits in a recent game. And all of a sudden he just walks. That's all he does. He walks. He goes up. He walks. It it doesn't matter how many pitches he takes. Uh, He actually got a big hit in the pirate series as well. So the bat's starting to come on, too. So you can tell he's really starting to see the ball well at the plate. And whenever a player is walking like that, you know, they have a, a great control of the zone. So yeah, I think he's definitely that leadoff hitter. I think the Brewers are still trending more towards using him in a platoon with Jed Jerko over at third base. But I don't know, in a season that's 60 games and knowing how quickly a player can go from hot to not, I think it's hard to take a player who's seen the ball as well as Sogard is out of the lineup, even if his platoon splits might call for it, which he he is a pretty evenly split guy, actually. He, he Even though as a lefty hitter, he isn't that awful against lefties, but there is more of a bonus when you put a healthy Jed Jerko in that situation. So I think he's going to lead off. I think he'll likely continue leading off and being in the Brewers lineup until you start to see that trend in a different direction. But otherwise, you're just taking advantage of a guy getting on base. And hopefully one day he'll get on base in front of a Christian Yelich who's actually hitting again. And then our old friend, Avasil Garcia. I've been doing this podcast for seven years, Brad, and we have spent a lot of time talking about Avi. First impressions of Avi Garcia with the Milwaukee Brewers, because he was, you know, a significant free agent signing for Milwaukee during this past offseason. So far, I've really liked him. Um, obviously, it hasn't had great success at the plate so far. Uh, hitting 250, nothing to complain about, but, you know, two extra base hits. He's advertised as being a strong power hitter and obviously not a super power hitter. What he he averages around 20 home runs a season. But the thing with him has always been the background analytics and the excitement behind him, his sprint speeds, uh, the you know speed of the ball at the bat, uh, his line drive rates and his launch angle, um, which I actually think his launch angle is a little poor. But uh, all those numbers combined to be the super exciting athletic freak. It, 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 he's only had a week of games to really rub that off for me, but it's still that excitement's still there. I think he's so, I want to see what's in the bottle. I like if there's any more magic to be juiced out of there by the brewers who've had a pretty good, who've done a pretty good job of getting a little bit more out of veteran players than other teams seem to. They, they've had issues developing hitting specifically in their farm, but at the big league level, they seem to work really well with hitters and adjusting their abilities and mentality to get the most out of them. So I'm hoping Craig Council and his staff can actually juice just a little bit more magic out of Avi because we all know, obviously White Sox fans know as well as anyone else, 
that there's a lot of potential in that kid. And he's still young uh, and hitters make huge leaps at the oddest times. So I'm still really excited about him. He's looked good. uh, Doesn't seem to be any bit of a liability in many facets of the game. A nice guy to put in the middle of a lineup and still have an opportunity to create some important runs for you. Yeah, if he does break out, it'd be great if he can do it against the Minnesota Twins and Cleveland Indians. That would be really <laughs> clutch, just to help out the White Sox. I'll I'll try to time it around that. I'll, Thank I'll you. like send my my magic juju over and really get Avi going. Excellent. That sounds great. Uh, looking at the pitching for the Milwaukee Brewers as they face the Chicago White Sox this upcoming week, four games, the first two games in Milwaukee, and then Wednesday and Thursday are in Chicago on the south side. On Monday, the probable pitcher, and this is a pitcher that we saw during the exhibition game between Milwaukee and Chicago, is Adrian Hauser. And Brad, after that exhibition game, everyone involved as far as with White Sox media and White Sox fans came away really impressed with Adrian Hauser in the sense of, man, he would be great in the White Sox rotation, Uh, easily would be the number three starter uh, for the White Sox. We came we came away really impressed and. It looks like as far as his first start of the season, he he only allowed one hit, which was a solo home run. He did walk three. He struck out four, uh, but he was pretty effective over five innings. Uh, what are your thoughts and takeaways for Adrian Hauser? Is he the clear number two in the starting rotation? I think right now, not necessarily in total talent. I think the rotation does have a ton of talent when you're looking at guys like Freddie Peralta and Corbin Burns. But the thing with Freddie and Corbin are they're still working on really putting that together. Uh, Burns made a phenomenal debut as a major leaguer in the bullpen and was dominant. But then last season gave up every home run ball, just all the home runs you could possibly give up. And then Freddie Peralta is the type of pitcher who's going to strike 18 of you out in one game and pitch, you know, six scoreless and get all strikeouts. And then the next game, he'll not make it out of the first inning and allow four runs. So when you're looking at a guy who not only has the talent, but also has the rest of the important aspects of the game refined in terms of control and command of the pitches, you're looking at Adrian Hauser. He was such a breath of fresh air last season when he came up as the Brewers were struggling to really find solidarity or like a solid piece in the rotation with Brandon Woodruff injured, looking for anyone who could really come in and answer the qualms that they were having. And he came in. Um, really showed well, and it seems that everything he's done well has carried over to this season. You know, has a solid fastball with good velocity on it, has a good secondary pitch that can really keep hitters off balance. He's been a guy I've liked since the Brewers have acquired him from Houston, who can, who has that number two potential. You know, he's never going to be the guy who consistently goes out, strikes out 10, and dominates lineup day after day after day. But right now, he's the hands down most reliable man in that rotation after Brandon Woodruff. And you know that if the playoffs were tomorrow, he'd probably be the second guy getting the ball. So yeah, he's definitely someone who has made a name for himself in recent seasons and established himself as a guy who is worthy to be in that rotation. Um, I, and I just really like watching a slider. Yeah. The slider is <laughs> a terrific pitch. It really is. And again, we were really impressed in the exhibition start. Uh, Josh Lindblom, 
somebody we don't know much about him. Uh, he pitched overseas, uh, and it looks like the White Sox are going to avoid Brandon, uh, Brandon Woodruff, which bless that's a great blessing from the baseball gods. Uh, what do you, what do we know about Josh Lindblom so far with the Brewers? Well, you know, he comes over back from Korea and only gets through three innings or I think just over three innings in his first start against Pittsburgh left early due to back tightness. Uh, so we don't know really how he's responded to that, that we've gotten minimal update in what he's, how he's progressed health wise after that, but really came back from Korea with, uh, as a bigger advancement in his spin rate and, uh, you know, more quality of life on his pitches. So since then, you know, he's a low nineties pitcher. He's not going to blow you away, but what he gets you with his movement, especially on his secondary pitches, you know, he can mix in the fastball and the cutter to keep hitters off track. He has a slider, uh, which has good movement on it and a pretty nasty curveball. And then, I mean, he has five pitches. He can really mix in on you, controls them all well and they all spin with this nasty movement that keeps hitters off track. The only thing is, even us as Brewers fans, we only have gotten limited exposure to him. So really, we know what we know from Korea, and we know what we know from a few exhibition innings and that taste of his performance in Pittsburgh with three and two thirds. The ERA is definitely inflated for him right now. I mean, it's all small sample size. We all know in baseball, things can really... Uh, impact you but he was great through those first three innings before the back spasms and cramping started where even in a tough situation i believe he had runners on the corners and was able to strike his way out of it um he he has looked or he looked really sharp but i'm wondering health wise if he'll really be that much of a threat right now or if he's ready to take the mound and then finally the brewers bullpen which has been very effective over the last couple of years Almost carried the Brewers into the World Series back in 2018 and the great what if if they held up in the wildcard game against the Washington Nationals last year. We all know about Josh Hader. Nobody, as far as opposing teams facing the Milwaukee Brewers, wants to see Josh Hader on the mound. But who else has been performing well to start the year for the Brewers out of the bullpen? I think the biggest bright spot in the bullpen has been David Phelps. Came in off an injury, uh, signed a one-year deal with the Milwaukee, but he has looked incredibly sharp in his, uh, you know, first few innings with the team. He's gone in three games so far, hasn't allowed any hits, uh, has struck out five, one walk. He's been just lights out, and it's the David Phelps you were hoping you were getting, the David Phelps of old, but. You know, you always get those guys who, oh, if they're healthy, they're going to be important to the team. But you never really know if that's actually going to come to fruition. And thankfully, he has been phenomenal. Uh, having Corey Knable back is very nice as well. Uh, he's had his ups and downs this season. In in his uh, three games, he came in kind of a tough fireman spot and couldn't really clean up the way Milwaukee wanted him to with runners on. And that led to the four inning disaster of the second game in Pittsburgh. Uh, but he's still a hard thrower with just a gorgeous curveball, And he was a big piece of what was missing last year in the rotate or in the bullpen. When you're looking at what worked in 2018, it was having that three headed monster when they were healthy of Knable, Hader and Jeffress. Jeffress could not pitch nearly as well last year. 
Hader, of course, was just as good, if not a little better. And then, but Knable has Tommy John to start the her the season, and he he was just such an essential mix in order to hold up that back end of the bullpen. Him being healthy again is fantastic for the team, and hopefully, he can continue dominating. So I would say those are the three most important. Other than that, there's just a, a nice mix of young guys. You have uh, Devin Williams, who's been a prospect for a long time, uh, throws 99, can touch 100 with a nasty changeup. Brent Suter is a fan favorite. He's actually on the older side. He's a soft-tossing lefty, 85 miles per hour, 86. But he just works. He gets the ball, he throws. He gets the ball, he throws. So be ready to not look away from the screen if he comes out. Uh, but he's also had a rough start to the season. He was phenomenal last year out of the pen, but he hasn't really, uh, you know, in his second appearance, got lit up pretty hard yeah, coming out for a second inning. So there's concerns about that as well. So there's still a little bit shaking out, but the the three-headed monster that we're hoping happening this year is definitely that combination of Knable, Hader, and David Phelps. I'm expecting these four games to be close between the Brewers and White Sox. So we'll have to get to know these bullpen arms because we're probably going to see them multiple times over the next four games. Again, I think this series is going to be tight between the two teams as both teams are hoping to stay at or above 500 after these next four games. And you could follow Brad on Twitter. He's at brew crew blue, and you could also read his excellent work at brewcrewball.com. I love their stuff. It's an excellent resource for all things about the Milwaukee Brewers. So if you want to catch up and learn more about more about the Brewers before this series starts again, go to brew crew ball and follow them on Twitter as well at brew crew ball. And Brad, thank you so much for coming on the show. Hey, thanks, Josh. I'm looking forward to an exciting series. The White Sox are, I know, a fun team, so this is going to be a good one. Coming up after the break, we take a look at the White Sox pitching probables against the Brewers on the Sox Machine Podcast. Is it time for a new heating and cooling system? Turn to the experts at Griffith Energy Services and Carrier today and get 0% financing for 18 months on a new heating and cooling system. Get the comfort you deserve from Griffith Energy Services and Carrier. Visit GriffithEnergyServices.com today for this and other exclusive offers. That's GriffithEnergyServices.com. License number MDHVACR01-2278. Griffith Energy Services. Doggone dependable. When you rely on the internet for everything, you need speed that can handle anything. And now, Xfinity delivers Wi-Fi speed faster than a gig. Check out our amazing offers on internet and learn about the latest breakthrough from Xfinity. Wi-Fi speed faster than a gig. That's more than enough speed to power all your devices and then some. Go online, call 1-800-XFINITY, or visit a store today to learn more. Restrictions apply. Gig Wi-Fi requires gig speed and compatible x gateway. Actual speeds vary and not guaranteed. Again, big thanks to Brad Ford for joining the Sox Machine podcast to preview the upcoming series against the Milwaukee Brewers with insight from the Brewers' perspective. Now switching back over to the White Sox perspective, and I'm rejoined on the show by Jim Margulis. And Jim, a look at the pitching probables for the Chicago White Sox. Again, this is a Monday through Thursday series. Monday and Tuesday night, these games are at 7.10 p.m. Central Time, and they will be played at Miller Park. For the White Sox, it is Carlos Rodon trying to bounce back from his rough outing in Cleveland. Uh, He gets the ball on the first game. Lucas Giolito is going to be pitching on Tuesday, hoping to repeat what he did in Cleveland on Wednesday at 
the south side as far as a guaranteed rate field again 7 10 p.m central time start Dallas Keuchel will be making his third start for the White Sox. And on Thursday night at 7:10, it is Gio Gonzalez for the White Sox. So it'll look like it'll be Cease, Rodon, and Giolito for that weekend series against Cleveland. A pretty pivotal series for the White Sox as it's the only time the Cleveland Indians will be visiting Guarantee Ray Field in 2020. And Jim, you know, speaking with Brad, I mean, it's just bad news. They didn't, they don't get an opportunity to play any games this weekend against the St. Louis Cardinals, and it was supposed to be their home opener. And then the bad news just just keeps avalanching on them. Lorenzo Cain opts out. Ryan Braun now is on the 10-day injured list. Their bench coach has a heart attack. Christian Yelich is 1-for-27 with a negative 40 OPS plus to start the season. And yet, the Brewers are 3-3. Three and three. And they're in second place in the National League Central. But I have to ask, with all these bad things happening at the same time right now, are the White Sox catching the Brewers at the right time? I think so. Like, there's, you know, I was looking at other teams and trying to figure out if there have been any trend lines when it comes to teams that had an unexpected interruption, whether it's because they had uh, a COVID-19 outbreak or because their schedule is interrupted by another team's and the Orioles were interrupted and they got stomped by the Yankees, of course, but then they came back and swept the Rays. So, uh, you know, they're not really, uh, uh, or they're kind of bucking trends and expectations right now, but you know, the Cardinals and, and, uh, the Marlins and so forth, you really don't know what they look like or what, uh, just the, an interruption like that does for a team yet or what kind of rust they show. But, you know, based on just the bodies missing and the bodies underperforming that, yeah, just uh, it's going to be, I guess, as favorable as it gets. And, you know, Lorenzo Cain, you know, we have a lot of experience watching him just uh, drive the White Sox nuts. And, uh, you know, it's good news for the White Sox. It's it's bad news for baseball. I think Cain is probably one of my favorite players who isn't on the White Sox. Uh, just in terms of really appreciating the, the the breadth of his game and his abilities, smarts, everything like that, and like I'd love him if he were on the White Sox, uh, and and so it's it's both great and uh, terrible that he's uh, you know that the circumstances of the season are such that he is not going to be playing. But with him out, yeah, and you, and you mentioned uh, with Braun out, lineup being a bit shallower, especially especially if like Yelich just isn't in this crazy isolated slump and you know, he's not going to use regression positively against the White Sox that yeah um you know could be similar to like say the Cleveland series where you know they are used to patching together innings um so that's not the problem but you could have a lot of uh, low scoring games where quality at bats later in the game are premium I am hoping that the White Sox keep Christian Yelich quiet I am in fear that Yelich wakes up the series Jim uh in a big way and that would obviously complicate a lot of things for the White Sox because it's nice that they're above 500 but this is a tough week for them the next seven games are against teams that are hoping to go to the postseason in 2020 in the Milwaukee Brewers and then followed up by the Cleveland Indians uh, this upcoming weekend for uh, three games at guaranteed rate field so I think the if the White Sox can find a way to go four and three in these next seven games then they go on the road to Detroit, which I feel pretty good about that series uh, from a White Sox perspective. Then we're talking about the White Sox being at or above 500 in mid-August. And uh, I think that would be a really good sign and really good for their chances of making the postseason 
in 2020. But in order for the White Sox to at least get a split against the Brewers or have any chance of winning this series, they really need Carlos Rodon to step up in Game 1. I have confidence in Giolito, and I have confidence in Keuchel in Games 2 and 3. Gonzalez, we'll see what the White Sox get out of Game 4. But if you're a White Sox fan and you want them to win this series against the Brewers, I think it really depends on how well Rodon pitches in Game 1 of this series, Jim. And from his last start against Cleveland, is there anything that you can single out that will determine whether or not we see a good performance from from Rodon? It's planting season. That means that now is the perfect time to add some color to your yard. And for that, you can't do better than roses from Proven Winners Color Choice Shrubs. They're the ones in the white containers. Each one has been trialed and tested by a team of expert horticulturists. Look for Proven Winners Roses in the white containers at your local garden center because you and your home deserve the best. Uh, you know, I think his margin for error has gotten slimmer and he's kind of in the Gio Gonzalez case where he might have to be inefficient in order to you know, have a decent line. Like, I don't count on him getting many uh, quality starts in his future, just, you know, where he can get six innings at least and keep him under three runs. I think those starts can be blessings in a way and, and five innings is going to be more his uh, realistic high-end expectations, especially, you know, given the short ramp up his injury history and just him trying to figure out how to not be a power pitcher anymore, or he's, he's, he still has more power. I think he's not quite a crafty lefty, but he's not, uh, just the, the grunt through five innings and, and, and force teams to, uh, you know, when, when his, when he's, uh, backed up against the ropes, he can just throw, you know, 89 mile per hour sliders to get out of a jam. I don't think that's him anymore. And so I think it's just going to be a lengthy process for him to reinvent himself. I think he eventually can, but it's going to take a while. So I'm hoping uh, you know, for him and Gonzalez, just having similar shape starts where they have four effective innings with a plan to cover uh, the middle innings. It's just unfortunate. They're both left-handed. So you can't have like Ross Detweiler there to uh, you know, come in and counter the handedness of the lineup. And then uh, you'll get through innings five and six, with his, you know, experience of, you know, pitching longer relief outings. I think that's going to be a little bit tricky for Renteria. But, you know, right now I'm looking at the schedule and kind of looking at just the rhythm of the season and the availability of players. And I think 500 right now is just the goal for August in a way. Uh, it's just because I can see a, a situation where injuries cascade and uh, slow uh, or, or short starts from starters uh collide and, and stretch out the bullpen and you can have a bad week. So I think as long as the White Sox can just avoid uh, having those, you know, thinking of the golf terms, just those blow up holes, like the triple or quadruple bogey that completely ruins your score. I think just staying within 500 for the month while trying to get everybody into game shape for September and having the lineup full. That's really what I have in mind for what's considered a success as unsteady of a season as this is. Well, you had a lot of questions for us after this weekend uh, to answer on this edition of the Sox Machine Podcast. So Jim and I will take a quick break, but when we come back, it's time to answer your questions in P.O. Sox. You've stuffed our mailbox all week with questions from your tweets and Facebook posts. Now to cure your curiosity on the White Sox, here is P.O. Sox. Thanks, Rob. And yes, this is our favorite part of the show where you, our fans and listeners, get to ask the questions. It's P.O. Socks, where you submitted your questions to us via Twitter by following us on Twitter at Socks Machine. 
and helping support the site and the show by becoming a friend at patreon.com slash socks machine, where we really, really appreciate your guys' support. And man, our Patreon supporters, they had a lot of questions for us this week, Jim. So all these questions uh, come from our Patreon supporters. And the first one comes from James Mahalovich, who played five innings earlier uh, in 2020 when we had that strain of episodes. And uh, James is asking, although it is getting lost in the successes of his teammates, I am concerned about Edwin Carnacion's start. With each game counting for yada, 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 how long of a leash should he get before those at-bats go elsewhere? If Edwin isn't hitting, I would like to see Grandal, McCann, Collins, Mazzara, and Mercedes get at-bats at DH. Yeah, that's uh, going to be one of the trickier things for Renteria to manage just because the you know, Encarnacion's track record is one that he hasn't really had on his roster um you know where he still theoretically has something to offer and you don't write off a guy because of a bad week in a a late starting season uh but when coming into the season and, and looking at the signings i was skeptical of renteria providing the nelson cruz like veteran ballast to a lineup that the twins benefited from you know with the similar signing of a of a bat only player um, just because of his pop-up rate, his worsening walk to strikeout disparity, you know, him being 38 years old and, you know, he's allowed to decline being 38, but just not wanting the White Sox to expect too much. I thought it was a fine signing just because of the point in the off season it was, you know, why not at a bat like him? Uh, you know, no harm. Uh, and, and if he's great for one more season of 30 home run power, cool. If he drops off, uh, then, you know, no harm done, you know, especially except in this, you know, scenario that, Jimbo outlines here where you have uh, um, just a, a case where you're giving too many bats, especially like ahead of Eloy Jimenez to somebody who's just popping up a lot, missing the pitches he should crush, limited singles and, you know, maybe the occasional homer, but just not quite making the impact that he has in the past. And I would say like probably another week of regular playing time. And if he's not shaping up, then I think you start wondering about like, well, what's Zach Collins doing? Uh, James McCann, uh, will they have three catchers? Um, you know, as uh, you know, assuming rosters pare down and, and right now I'm thinking they won't pare down. They might be 30 all season. And if you have luxury of three catchers the whole time, then you can maybe mix and match them at more and platoon and, and not have to worry about, uh, you know, a bat only guy who doesn't uh, run and, you know, isn't, particularly having great at bats right now. Yeah. Even if he would walk, he's not providing a lot of value once he gets on the bases. Uh, just not a lot's not going right for him. And uh, I can see the situation giving his age where it just either takes forever for him to turn around or it just doesn't happen. And I think the white Sox should be prepared for that. But I think, you know, given the uh, just, it's good to have depth and it's good to not, you know, exhaust all your options immediately to where if Encarnacion is just rounding into shape, give him another week or so to see if it is just knocking rust off and, and he'll start pounding pitches eventually. But I would say after say the Cardinal series, I would, I would, and if he's still hitting one something and barely walking and missing more pitches than he is hitting, then uh, yeah, I would say start exploring those alternate options where you can get the, the other catchers involved. Jimbo, thank you so much for your question and, of course, your support on SoxMachine.com. Our next question comes from Tyndale, and Tyndale's asking, do you guys think that the White Sox will DFA Nicky Domonico 
to make room for Nomar Mazzara. By the time we answer this question, Jim, it may have already been settled uh, for those that are listening to this episode, but we do not know what the White Sox roster move is at this moment of recording this episode to make room for Nomar Mazzara. So, Jim, do you think the White Sox would DFA Delmonico to make room for Mazzara? I don't think, you know, maybe DFA is the wrong word. I can see him being optioned down. He does have options remaining and they can do that. I think just the lack of outfield depth, which is the reason why Delmonico has played so much. I think that's the one thing that keeps me from thinking the White Sox are going to do anything particularly drastic uh, with this spot. Uh, just because, say, if Mazzara gets hurt again or Eloy gets hurt or if they just, you know, the, the you know, just the injuries pop up or outbreak happens or whatever this weird season springs upon the White Sox that all of a sudden they need somebody who can at least recognize major league pitching, which Delmonico, you know, his, his plate discipline is fine. It's just his ability to get around on good fastballs is the problem. And I loved on uh, Sunday's game when, uh, you know, Steve Stone, you can just hear the contempt in his voice when Holland threw him a slider after Delmonico looked like he was getting beat with fastballs. And he just uh, hung a slider, rolled it right over the, the middle of the plate, and Delmonico ripped into right field for a two-run single, and Stone was just, it was a good outcome for the White Sox, and they benefited from that. But you could just hear him as a predictive pitcher voice, just, you know, just hating that pitch call. And I think that's where Delmonico is at. The, the plate discipline's fine, and he battles admirably, but part of the reason he battles is that he can't put fastballs in play with regularity. But when you look at the other options like Blake Rutherford or Luis Basabe or, or whoever else, you know, Ryan Goins if you throw him in the outfield, Danny Mendick if you throw him in the out, like none of them are that great. And uh, so it's, with that mess like that, I can see them not wanting to DFA Delmonico. I can't see him optioning down, but I think there are other options like uh, you know, either Mercedes if he goes down or if they want to remove somebody from the uh, 40 man, they can do uh, Jose Ruiz or uh, Yosebi Zavala or, or you know, Ryan Goins. Just there are a bunch of other guys they can cut who don't aren't that kind of uh, right field option or corner outfield option that the White Sox fashioned Delmonico as. That makes me think he's not going to be done once Mazzara gets back. But they do have to make room in the 40 man roster, don't they? Yes. Yep. That's why I mentioned Ruiz and Zavala and, and you know, going one of the utility infielders maybe being let go. Well, I mean, Goins just joined the team. <laughs> He's only been a base runner. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. The same thing with like they, they Cuthbert had just joined the team and they they punted him for Goins and I could see you know just being a a year where you know especially if you're a fringe pitcher or a fringe multi position player that you just. You don't get too settled in one place. Well, Kevin Herrera learned that. Especially like in a case like the, <laughs> yeah, like I'm thinking like with the Marlins too, just like with the way they're just accumulating pitchers because so many of them are missing uh, or out of action that, uh, especially pitchers, uh, it might be easy to find jobs uh, around the league, even if you have a, a, a little bit of misfortune. Yeah, I'm expecting Kevin Herrera to be in a Miami Marlins uniform in the next couple of weeks. I wonder if he would accept that, given that he's earned money. Like, he, he doesn't need a paycheck. I think he would, because that would be his only opportunity. If he wants to pitch, if he truly wants to pitch this season, I just don't see any other team picking him up. Yeah, I just think, like, if he wants to opt out and if he just wants to say, like, you know, I'm great, you know, just uh, you know, worry about getting fully healthy and into, you know, better throwing condition for next spring training. I'm making a salary this year. I don't need the Marlins. I wonder if that's going to be his approach. Yeah, good. You know, that, that is a good point. We'll see what he does. 
but I'm sure he's going to get an invite. I'm sure. Oh yeah. <laughs> I think anybody with a functioning arm <laughs> and, and even like a, a cup of coffee in the majors is getting a look. Yeah. So if the White Sox DFA anyone off their 40 man roster, I am expecting the Marlins to be on the phone uh, with those players. Yeah, Carson Fulmer got very lucky. He did. He did. Yeah. Cause if he gets cut now, yeah, he'd be in Miami. <laughs> There's no doubt about that. No doubt about that. Well, Tyndale, thank you so much for your question. Our next question comes from Michael, and Michael's asking about Adam Engel. Actual improvement or just a hot streak? He was looking better when he came back last season, but I'm not sure if we could ever expect a league average bat from Adam Engel. I think it's both. I think there's there's been actual improvement from the second half uh, or last couple months of 2019 into this year to where he isn't the automatic out that he was for long stretches of previous seasons. So uh, there is actual improvement, but yeah, is he going to be batting 400 and uh, just looking the way he has? Uh, no, the hard hit ball is great. Uh, hard hit rate is great. The line drive rate is great. Uh, the contact rate, not so great. So he's making a lot of the pitches he hits, but the fundamental flaws of you know why he's been limited to date are still persistent. But I think when it comes to the outfield depth and with Mazzara coming back, this will be a case where Will Engel play is he seems to be the kind of player that if you want him playing more, he's playing the right amount. Like I'm thinking like other guys like, you know, Larry Garcia and Yolmer Sanchez to where uh, in, in previous seasons where Yolmer could get hot and you think like, oh, he's going to be the everyday second baseman. And he's the everyday second baseman and he slugs, you know, barely over 300 and just like, okay, that's, he's been overexposed. I think there's a, a similar case there with Angle to where if he had to play every day 140 games, you know, in a or the prorated amount, um, which would be, you know, 50 games or whatever, just be like, uh, that's, you know, not what you want to see. Uh, you know, they, eventually he's going to get tired. It's going to be figured out and, and fans are going to want somebody else. But if he plays enough to where he looks promising most of the time, that's probably a case where he's getting the right matchups. He's, uh, you know, not going to be hung out to dry, you're either batting too high in the order or being, you know, facing like the Indians grade right-handed pitchers that can eat them alive. And uh, I think, you know, if he's facing like say the dregs of the Royal staff or the Tigers rebuild staff or, you know, the Brewers, if they're not healthy or the Cardinals, or if they're not healthy or, you know, just there are a bunch of uh, matchups as the season goes along to where he can get some playing time, do some damage. And I think, uh, if he's looks promising and if you get frustrated by what Mazzara does or what Delmonico does and want to see a lot more of Angle, I think that's a good thing for the White Sox depth that they can excuse themselves from not needing Angle. And uh, Angle's doing well enough that he's representing himself well. And, you know, maybe this is the start of a beautiful thing where Angle has finally found his purpose on a team, fourth outfielder facing lefties. And through hard work and determination and his gifts as an outfielder and you know, as a base runner that he can he can be on a team, whether it's the White Sox or somebody else, for the long haul. The White Sox do have 21 more games against the Tigers, Royals, and we'll throw in the Pittsburgh Pirates as well. So more opportunities. Like, I am not concerned if Adam Engel picks up a start in any of those series. Too. Yeah, I think it's fair. Out, outs, I think, are, are yeah, uh, when it comes to the kind of offense they can put up, that his abilities in right field. Um you know, I, I think pay off more than uh, a start where they need the runs. Right. But if he's starting games against the Twins or even the Cubs, let's say, then I'm a little concerned. But are you talking about like against righties? Yeah. 
Okay. Yeah. Well, I mean, yeah, I could see him starting a Cubs game against John Lester. Yeah. yeah. Or if Jose Katana comes back, I, I could see that. But yeah, I mean, hey, Adam Engel is starting against Cleveland and it's Carlos Carrasco on the mound. No. Yeah, Shane Bieber, Clevenger, Carrasco. Yeah. <laughs> no. Okay, so where that's, I think, where you start seeing the angle that you got tired of. Yeah. I mean, but right now, I think he's found a really good balance, and uh, I'm, I'm happy for him just because, yeah, I, I always have some sympathy. Yeah, I have sympathy both ways. I have sympathy for the fans who have to watch overmatched players for far too long, but I'm also sympathetic to players who have skills, have defined areas where they're strong and can help a team, but are just asked, uh, too much is demanded from them in other areas where either they haven't yet proven capable or just aren't yet capable. And I think it's, you know, there is an unfairness to that, but at the same time, you know, that just, they, they are making major league salaries and service times and per diem and everything like that. So it's never that bad. So I think, uh, uh, you know, Engel's done well to survive to this point to where he's found a niche and hopefully the White Sox have enough depth to where they can keep them in that niche. Well, thank you so much for the question. And again, it's great to see, Michael, that Adam Engel has been performing well. And again, he's probably the reason why the White Sox won on Friday, providing the only offense with that three-run homer. So he's had a pretty positive impact so far on the White Sox in the first nine games of the season. And I'm sure we'll see him, as Jim mentioned, as a defensive replacement late in games when the White Sox are trying to hold on against some of the top tier, replacing Omar Mazar in right field in the eighth and ninth innings to, to lock down games. But, Michael, thank you so much for your question. Our next question comes from Marco, and we're going to move away from baseball. We're going to talk about media in general. Mark is asking Jim, pretty far off topic, so maybe doesn't quite fit in P.O. Sox, but with the announcement of Defector by X-Dead Spinners this week. The success of subscriber sites like The Athletic and Sox Machine and the growth of email newsletters. Are we in a new era of sports journalism where users can get their content from a source that aligns with their hyper-specific interests, political leanings, uh, preferred writing style, etc.? Well, first of all, I'd like to thank him for lumping me in with The Athletic and and well, what was Deadspin and now is Defector <laughs> as a success. I think uh, Sox Machine is not quite on that level, but um, yeah, to me, it's not a new era. It's more of an old era uh, that reminds me of like the blogosphere from you know, the late last decade, like the 2008 to 2010 or where you just had a lot of blogs coming out in pre-Twitter to where... Um, you know, when Twitter came out, there were more people who were just more Twitter personalities. Like as White Sox Twitter became beefed up and people said, well, I can just do my writing there. I can offer my thoughts there. I don't need a blog. I'd, it's too much of a time commitment, too uh, expensive or what have you to build up an audience. I can just get Twitter followers and, and you know, get good at forming my thoughts into 140, 280 characters. Um, but now I think there's... Uh, a little bit of what's been missing in terms of just like good writing from a point of view. And I think, you know, when it comes to socks machine and just being, you know, what we are, I think it's hard to replicate what, you know, we have partially because we've been doing it for so ungodly long, uh, you know, <laughs> writing it for, yeah. Uh, is this the seventh season? This is our season? seventh season. Podcast, yeah. It's se- seventh season of the podcast. I've been writing for 15 years and it's, you know, partially, you know, being able to write because, you know, just, you know, uh, the way my job and life worked, I had time and ability and, and desire to write. And the same thing with, you know, being able to produce the podcast, same thing, same thing where you just have 
a really good life structure that allows you to do it. And, and you know, a lot of people can't, and, and that's just kind of how it works out. And, uh, you know, I, part of the reason I, it's easy to keep writing is because I've done the work for this long and, and, you know, have a, um, you know, have an audience and have a really supportive reader base where it just, it, it motivates you. Cause like, what's the point of, uh, you know, having done all that work, if it doesn't make you want to keep doing the work, that's kind of my attitude there, but it's going to be an interesting, um, it's an interesting and encouraging development when you see like the athletic, at least, you know, before the pandemic doing well, and I hope that it doesn't really, uh, crush the business model because I think the pandemic was kind of what the blogosphere or before the pandemic, the athletic was kind of what the blogosphere was and that it was easy to get a lot of writers who you could read and, and, uh, you know, their, their editors, especially just maybe, uh, you know, every market is not the same, but I think with the athletic, like John Greenberg, you know, being an ESPN guy and bringing guys like, uh, you know, James Fegan and Scott Powers and, and, and Sadhav Sharma, you know, just guys with blog backgrounds, or at least guys with very, who are obsessive about their teams and, and have written, uh, you know, without editors before and, and more just like writing about what makes them interested in the teams they follow and using that attitude, you know, in, in a, in a venture capital backed, uh, you know, massive sports enterprise, still keeping that same attitude to where like, Hey, this is interesting. This isn't what most beat writers are going to write about or think about writing about, but trust me, it's going to pay off. I really like seeing that attitude, especially like in the Chicago athletic, uh, you know, for the teams I follow and that's cool. And I think athletics had a lot of success that way. I think with Deadspin, it's kind of the same thing where, uh, Deadspin had a really, um, you know, just a really strong core of writers who are respected for their points of view or people came for them for their points of view, whether it's because they were strong or ridiculous or, you know, left-leaning or, you know, just, uh, uh, reverence, what, you know, whatever, you know, people went there for, it was just defined and people knew what they're going to get. They felt a connection to the writers. They wanted to know what those writers thought about a certain thing. And so it's cool to see them come back and deliver that because that kind of reminds me of the old blogosphere to where just people, you know, were able to form their own voices and, and readers locked on those voices and, uh, they got to get, got away with that. Not only with like Twitter, you know, being, you know, just uh, an instant way to, you know, provide, uh, those, you know, your perspective and develop a voice that way, but also like Facebook ruined a lot with the pivot to video and just, you know, putting all this, you know, forcing, you know, media outlets to put all their money into video. Then they realized they're goosing the numbers and they had to lay off their entire staffs and it ruined entire outlets. That was another thing that was really devastating. And I think now it's just, uh, I, I like seeing that outlets feel like they're rewarded for building connections with readers and developing a strong point of view that readers want to come to specifically for that. I think the newsletter thing is interesting too, um, just because, you know, it, does, it is that bloggy-like writing where you're writing directly for somebody. It's in their email, it's in their inbox instead of, you know, on a blog, uh, but it's kind of the same thing. Uh, but I do like seeing Defector. I think that's more encouraging to me just because I, I think when you had these, you know, outlets like Grantland uh, dissolving it, and you know, a lot of Grantland people went to MVTV and then that dissolved. Then you had these, you know, everybody starts their own newsletter. Instead of supporting one outlet with your money or your attention, you're trying to support 10 outlets with your money and attention. I think it's it's good if some areas can consolidate. And I, I'm saying that a little bit selfishly because Sox Machine is so single interest. But I do respect that readers have a lot of, people and, and, and organizations and artists and, and, uh, advocates and charities and everything that they want to support. And I know that especially times like this, that 
money is being spread around and tensions being spread around. And, and I do not take that for granted. <laughs> and, and I really appreciate that. That's part of the real one reason why I chose to field this question. It's a little bit selfish and navel gazing, but uh, when you see just how, you know, how media outlets are trying to reinvent themselves and how many people are trying to do it on their own and, and get by being small and, and being kind of uh, delivering for people. It's like, it's not easy. And, and, it's uh, you know not easy for us, and but fortunately we've been doing it for so long that we have uh, inertia on our side, and uh, we have an audience on our side that motivates us. And I, I do not take that for granted, and I and I appreciate every single uh, Patreon supporter, whether it's you know from a dollar a month to way more than a dollar a month. There have been some some really generous people uh, donating above our tiers, uh, which I which blows my mind, and I really appreciate that. But everybody who chips in and, and supports us is really. Uh, I think it's impossible to take that for granted just based on how hard it is for media outlets to figure out exactly how to do it right now. No, really good points, Jim. I also think the audience as well, Mark, has changed in the sense that maybe a decade ago, we were more focused on generalities, right? Looking at the league as a whole and how the league was performing, where in every sport now, as things have evolved where every blog that covers a specific team now has a podcast that goes with it, or they're doing Zoom video calls as well. They're, they're adding YouTube channels uh, and adding more video and doing everything that the big media outlets are doing, that the audience is like hungry, hungry hippos, where content is the little white balls and they're just slapping their hippo to try to consume as much as possible about their team. Um, slapping their hippo sounds a little bit filthy, but yeah. Okay. <laughs> <laughs> um, yeah. <laughs> I, I just now I'll never get that image out of my head. You have ruined hungry, hungry hippos for me, Jen. <laughs> but anyways, Mark, because the audience is just so hungry for this type of content. And I find myself in the same manner as well that they're going to keep consuming no matter what now. And it's up to those that have the talent and the willpower to provide that platform and to provide that content on a everyday basis to feed that appetite. When we started the Southside Sox podcast, we were the only White Sox podcast at the time because I think 35th and Shields kind of stopped their run. And it was before even NBC Sports had White Sox Talk. And then White Sox Talk launched their podcast shortly after. If you remember, the Chicago White Sox had their own podcast as well, but that died mm -hmm. uh, after a couple seasons. And now there's like a dozen White Sox podcasts uh, today uh, as it just keeps continuing to grow and grow and grow. So from a White Sox perspective, as far as content, it's uh, – it, it is crazy, <clears throat> excuse me, on uh, on how much larger it is today than it was in the past. And, and, you know, some will stick around and, you know, some after a couple of seasons will will fade away uh, as they just can't keep up with as far as the, the demand. But, you know, with Defector coming back as far as those X-Dead spinners, I think they're coming back, Mark, because there's a huge audience for it. And as long as there is an audience... You're, I think, going to see more of these hyper-specific interests because I think everyone that produces content today, whether you think it's journalism or not, just from content-making standpoint, there are people who make 
Pokemon Go videos. That's all they do on YouTube. And you may think, Pokemon Go, man, who plays that game? And they got more than a million subscribers on YouTube. And that is their career. You heard me right. Career. That's what they do. They play Pokemon Go for hours a day. And they make a lot of money doing it. Because there is a huge audience for that type of content. And as long as there's a lot of White Sox fans that are continuing to listen to the Sox Machine podcast and continuing to visit SoxMachine.com and help support us on Patreon.com, we'll be here. And I assume The Athletic will as well. And I'm assuming Defector is going to have a tremendous successful launch when they go off. And I, I think a big part, of, big part of that is that the audience itself has shifted where they're cool having these hyper-specific content platforms, Jim, rather than always going to ESPN or Fox or even on the news front like CNN that the audience is willing to go into these hyper-specific content platforms. Yeah, I think it's just, uh, you know, I, I keep coming back to like points of view and, and what do I enjoy reading? I enjoy reading writers who are, you know, passionate about what they do, you know, knowledgeable and just are know how to connect, know how to push buttons, know how to just keep your interest and, and uh, you want to hear from them. And I think uh, that's what media got away from, especially when it came to Facebook and just trying to flood the zone with videos and, and you know, quick recaps and just, uh, you know, features, things that what they call it, snackable content. <laughs> it's a, a phrase I like to see die. Um, and, and now I think it's come back to the point where just, you know, it's ultimately, you know, people can do it in video, people can do it in podcast, just, you know, having connections and uh you know i think subscribe yeah you know, I, I think it's helped that more people are willing to subscribe i think there's been a you know when it came to like the whole flooding the zone part and just uh you know, the over-reliance on video and everything you know, like fox sports dumping its entire writing staff to go into video um that just there was nothing there there was no point of view there was no uh no reason to go um or if you're going there is by accident or just because you googled white socks or UFC fight or whatever, uh, you know, exactly was going to be dominating the, uh, the Google search rankings at the time. So yeah, it's, it's, uh, it's nice to see it got away from that. And it's nice to see that, you know, that there is more of an, uh, acceptance of subscriptions in supporting and, uh, that, you know, you don't paywall isn't a bad word anymore, especially like, you know, with what we do with like selective paywalls that people don't get mad when we have certain stuff behind a content just for the people who, you know, help support us and make it, you know, allow us to have, um, you know, our platform and, and you know, an ad-free platform at that, uh, on the site. And, and so it's, uh, I think there's a nice balance being found. It's just taken a long time to get there. Well, Mark, thank you so much for your question. We greatly appreciate it. And thank you to everyone that submitted questions this week for P.O. Socks. Again, we had a lot of questions this week, so thank you so much for taking the time to do so. If you have a question or topic that you would like us to tackle on a future episode of the Socks Machine podcast, again, follow us on Twitter. We're at Socks Machine. You can also follow me on Twitter. I'm at Socks Machine underscore Josh. And you can support us on Patreon at patreon.com slash Socks Machine where we have been giving away some swag to our Patreon supporters, a new t-shirt, but also, Jim, a new coffee mug that is now available to buy on SocksMachine.com. Do you want to give the details to our listeners? Yes, just, uh, well, technically right now it says sold out by the time uh, 
this post in the morning. It will not be um, 14 ounce coffee mugs, uh, paying tribute to the greatest cup of coffee in White Sox history, at least you know, the White Sox history that we know. Uh, you know, Dan Johnson's wonderful 2012 season, especially the three homer game in game 162. Um, we just opened the Sox Machine store in order to sell these, but we're also, uh, it's the premium gift for new subscribers to uh, the new subscribers at the $10 tier. Uh, after the second month of support, they will get the uh, coffee mug sent to them uh, you know, as a gift for their support. So either way, you can purchase it right now or you can support, and it's actually a little bit cheaper if you do it through supporting. So either in, I'll be um, holding on to some mugs, like a, I would say probably a dozen mugs just for new subscribers who uh, sign up to make sure that even when sell out through the site. We'll still have some on hand to reward subscribers and new supporters who, uh, back our work. Um, and right now, uh, right. I'm right now posting about 10 at a time on the store, just so I can make sure to process, process them and ship them out in a timely fashion. Um, you know, I'd be worried if somehow like 40 showed up in one day and I'd have to struggle to stay on top of it. And people would be checking their email, email to wonder if they'd been shipped out yet. So I figure 10 a day is when I can, uh, pack them, ship them, get them on their way, and people can expect them in a timely manner. So if you see them sold out on one time you go, check the next day. They'll probably be there. And uh, we may have some shirts for sale as well on SoxMachine.com soon. Yes. So we're uh, right now going with the mug to just uh, make sure right now it seems like it's working fine, but make sure that there are no kinks. And then after that, we'll expand. Yeah. So new ways you could help support us new swag that you can buy. But again, if you want this swag, and if you enjoy our content and you want more, go to patreon.com slash socks machine and sign up today. And that will do it for this episode of the socks machine podcast. Thank you so much for listening. A lot is going on with the Chicago white Sox, And I know this is a lengthier episode. So thanks for listening all the way through. Also big. Thank you from brew crew ball, Brad Ford for joining the show to give us Uh, The insight on the Milwaukee Brewers is the White Sox and Brewers play over the next four days. Knock on wood, all those games are played without any issues as far as coronavirus tests being positive and weather, uh, bad weather at least stays away, especially the games on the south side on Wednesday and Thursday. But if you just discovered the Sox Machine podcast, you can subscribe to the show in anywhere, anywhere that you listen to podcasts, you can subscribe to this show. And the Sox Machine Podcast is a production of SoxMachine.com, your home for all things Chicago White Sox baseball. Alongside Jim Margulis, I'm Josh Nelson. Thanks for listening. Your business may be small, but you've got big goals. Brother Laser Printers can help you succeed, no matter the space, task, or budget. From crisp black and white to vivid full color, our printers offer affordable quality you can trust. Plus, fast printing and high page yields make them ideal for home offices and shared workspaces. It's no wonder Brother is the number one retail brand in laser printer unit sales in the U.S. With Brother at your side, go from small to do it all. Shop now at brother-usa.com laser. Sugar Ray Leonard, Roberto Duran, Marvelous Marvin Hagler, and Thomas Hearns. Legends, whose four-way rivalry defined one of the greatest eras in boxing history. Relive their decade of dominance in the new Showtime sports documentary, The Kings, a four-part series premiering Sunday, June 6th, only on Showtime.